All right. Well, good evening. Um, go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 tonight. That's where we're going to be. All right. So we deal with sin. That's what we're going to deal with tonight. Um, tonight, chapter 5 begins a second section of 1 Corinthians. And it's a section that deals with some of the problems in the church. At first, the big major problem that we, that we learned about at the beginning of the, the book was the problem of disunity. They wanted to follow different people. Different leaders had taken aim at the people of the church. And so they started teaching. They started teaching false doctrines. They started leading people places that they should not have gone. And because of that, that resulted in sin. That resulted in people going astray from the truth of the gospel. And it's easy for us to go astray from that too because we find other passages. We find other um, interpretations of scripture. We find other teachings. We find other um, even like YouTube channels that teach us things about the Bible that just simply aren't true. And so it's easy for us to get misled just like the Corinthians did. But tonight we're going to deal with the problem of sin. I have seen firsthand multiple church uh, splits in my own life. And one of them being at Open Door. I watched that as did all of you. You guys saw what it looks like when somebody wants to take people away from from where God is leading a church. I've also seen it in a church um, in Florida in a small little town that you wouldn't know the name of, but I went to that church and I've told you the story before. Um, there was one group who was the family of this deacon who convinced himself and his whole family that he had not done something immoral to one of the teenage girls like 40 or 50 years ago. It's such a long bred issue in this church, um, but yet, it was still there and the the factions divided and they just got deeper and deeper and deeper. And I was there the day that it all boiled over and the day that the church literally split sides of the auditorium. There were some who were in support of the people who were protesting. There were other people who were yelling at them and there was wrong on both sides. And um, the, the biblical position was not with the people who were protesting and yet the people who took that biblical position still handled it in a way that was unrighteous. And so it is very possible to be divided because of different teachers or because of different people. But it's also possible to be divided because of sin. And God doesn't bless where there is sin. Sometimes he blesses out of grace. Sometimes he allows us to, to see some element of blessing despite the fact that we are living in, in objection to his standards. But at the end of the day, it is our responsibility as Christians to curb our sin, to purify our church from sin, and to cast out um, that, that spirit of, of normal carnality, that human element of sin. We have no business being a church full of continual sinners who never, ever repent. That's just not what Jesus died for us for. And so sin is an issue. Sin is our issue, um, not necessarily our church's issue. Like, like we talked about growth last week. So that I'm not saying that that's why we haven't grown or anything. I'm just saying that sin is our issue because we're humans. And I have problems and you have problems, and we need to fix those problems because it is our problem to fix. And as a church, God gives us not only the individual responsibility to Christ, but the corporate, the body responsibility to Christ to cast out the evildoer. But he also gives us the responsibility to restore the people who fall. And so our goal tonight is to talk about both paths. And you're going to see that um, the key takeaway tonight is to remove sin from our church body. Remove sin from our church body. Now, obviously, you know as well as everybody else in here, we are never going to be a sinless church, obviously. However, we can do everything that we're supposed to do in order to stay away from sin ourselves and to get rid of sin whenever it persists. So there's really, there's two paths. Um, you sin, I sin, we all sin. And the people who continue to grow in our church, um, if we have 10 people in our church right now, 10 people means 10 sinners. Multiply that by 10, you have 100 people, and you have 10 times the sin. So as we grow, we are going to deal inevitably with more and more and more problems, and they will get deeper. They will get more widespread. They will become more prevalent, and our culture will 
push certain sins that other churches might not have to deal with as much in some areas of the globe. Um, for instance, up in the Arctic, people are depressed often, and it's because you know the sun doesn't come up all the way for <laughs> long stretches of time. For half the year, they don't even really see daylight the right way. And so for them, depression is a very easy thing to slip into. And typically when people deal with depression, they want something that is antidepressant. And the most common form of that in the Arctic is alcohol. Now, drugs are a secondary thing, but if I were to go to New York, drugs would probably be a bigger problem than alcohol. If I were in the Arctic, then alcohol is going to be a bigger problem. Here in Hammond, what is our problem going to be? Well, we don't know yet because we haven't seen it. We haven't dealt it with it. We haven't helped people through all of it. But we do know that we're going to have a problem. We do know that there's going to be more than one. And we do know that we are the ones who have to help people through it. We also have to be the ones to combat it. And so tonight, there's really two paths that someone who sins can take. The first one is unrepentant, the unrepentant path. Un R E P E N T A N T. I always misspell it. This is number one. So the unrepentant path. Now let's look at our passage tonight. And I'm going to read through chapter five. And um, I want you to get ready to turn a lot tonight because we're going to go to uh, several passages. Um, I don't have a bunch of extra like stories or illustrations. I just want to buy, I want the Bible tonight to do a lot of the heavy lifting because there's so much that the Bible has to say on sin, but there's also so much that the Bible has to say about restoration. And I want that to be the emphasis. So let's get through the sad part, the sad story that we could take so that we can get to the happy story, the, the happy story that we could take. So look at chapter five. It says, verse one, it is actually reported or it is commonly reported if you were to read other versions that there is sexual immorality among you. And such immorality is not as even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife. Let me explain this. A man has his stepmother as his sexual partner. That's not okay. In fact, it's so not okay that even the Corinthians there in Corinth, like the non-Christians, they don't even do that. And yet it's commonly reported among the church in Corinth. What if somebody said that about our church? It's commonly reported that there's a man sleeping with his stepmother. What on earth? That's the kind of problem that, that Corinth has. Verse 2, but you are arrogant. Instead, you should have mourned so that he who's done this deed might be removed from among you. For indeed, though absent in the body, but present in spirit, I have already, as if I were present, judged him who has done this deed in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he gives this instruction. When you're assembled along with my spirit in the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver him to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that the spirit might be saved on the day of the Lord Jesus. The idea here is, if somebody's going to live in sin so much so that it is common to talk about the Corinthian church that way, that's what comes up. When someone says Corinth, they think of the temple prostitutes. When someone says the Corinthian church, they think of the man who sleeps with his stepmother. It's just, that's not the testimony that Corinth needed. And so Paul says, you got to kick that guy out so that that church is no longer known as the church with that guy in it. It's known as the church who kicked that guy out of it. And the problem was this man clearly didn't repent. The man clearly didn't fix it because it wasn't just something that somebody heard and said. It wasn't just a rumor. It was something that was commonly reported. It's something that Paul, who didn't even live near Corinth at that time, was hearing about. Sin, when it is unrepentant, has certain consequences. And in this man's case, the very next time you guys meet for Sunday or you guys meet for a service, make sure that he never comes back until he repents, if he were to repent. And then he says to deliver him to Satan. That sounds such like a sad, morbid thing. Like, could you imagine like me looking over at one of you and saying, be delivered unto Satan in Jesus' name? Like, that's such a, it's such a dark thing. But if you realize sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. And the consequences, the payment for your sin is death. And sometimes God needs to get a hold of people's hearts 
by allowing them to go the path of sin. And sometimes he needs to help them stay away from it. Kind of like a parent. You need sometimes to let your kid fall off the bike in order to help them learn how to ride the bike. Exactly. They need to burn their hand on the stove in order to learn how to cook. Like it's just, it's just a natural progression of life. And there's some things that after you touch it, after it really stings, you know you just don't do that ever again. And that's what this means. Deliver him to Satan. Let him do his thing. If he wants to be such an ungodly sinner, if he's been saved by Jesus and he still doesn't care about it that much, then let him go do his thing. Because not even the wonderful gospel can change his, his mind. What makes you think that you can too? If a man won't let God change him, why do you think that he will let you? So deliver him unto Satan. Verse 6, he says, your boasting is not good. He returns to this. Remember a minute ago, he said that you're arrogant. Verse 6, he says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch? Therefore, purge out the old yeast, that you may be a new batch, since you are unleavened. For even Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with the old yeast, nor with the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with truth, with the unleavened, I'm sorry, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. He uses this word picture of the Passover. Jesus was a Passover lamb whose blood was shed for us. You no longer need to live in the old sins. You no longer need to deal with the old problems that the Gentiles faced because you guys have been redeemed by Christ. He already shed his blood for you as a Passover lamb. So why would you go back to the old things that are disgusting, the old things that would be named among you if you weren't saved? Why do you keep that kind of person in fellowship? He says, don't, don't keep the feast with the old yeast, just a word picture. Don't be Christians with malice and wickedness. Don't be a Christian with the desire to hurt somebody, the desire for more people to get harmed, the desire for wickedness, which is sin, anything that is against what God has for us. Don't be that kind of Christian. Be the kind of Christian instead with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Be pure. Be away from that sin because a little bit of sin changes the entire church. Don't be like that. Be like a church that is full of sincerity and in truth. Remember, Jesus said that we worship God not with acts of righteousness, but we, we worship God in, in spirit and in truth. Our spirit, our heart worships God, and you can only worship God with truth. And Paul echoes this later on in Galatians. And so that's how we worship God, with sincerity in our spirit and with truth. Now, look in verse 9. It says, I wrote to you in my letter. So he had already written a letter to the Corinthians. This is his second letter. He's following up. I wrote to you in my letter not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet, I did not mean the sexually immoral people of this world, or of the covetous, or of the extortioners, or the idolaters, since you would then need to go out of the world. He says, if you, like, I, I already told you to stay away from sinful people, but I didn't mean to stay away from sinful people who weren't Christians because then you just have to die. Like, the only way to stay away from non Christians is just not to exist. Create your own little colony somewhere in an island and then just live on, among yourselves. That's not what he meant. He meant when there's somebody who's in the church but who wants to act like they're not in the church, then keep them outside of the church because the church lives in unity, and they reflect God's holiness. And if a church is meant to reflect God's holiness, then how on earth can we allow someone in who does not care about God's holiness, who does not care about their reflection of God's holiness? Sin takes the picture of God and snaps it in half. It says, I don't care. And when it's unrepentant like this, when there's no intention to change it, just throws away the character of God and says, we don't care. We don't want that. So he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to keep company with sexually immoral people, yet I did not mean the sexually immoral people of this world or the covetous or the extortioners or the idolaters, since you would then need to go out of the world. But I have written to you not to keep company with any man who is called a brother, that means a Christian, who is sexually immoral. 
What does that mean? It means somebody who looks at somebody else with lust. Remember Jesus said, you guys, you talk about fornication and adultery. And if you actually sleep with another man's wife, then you're an adulterer. But I say to you, you use your eyes and you look at somebody and you think something in your heart that you ought not to think, then you've committed adultery before God. Sexually immoral here, the word is fornication, not even adultery. Adultery has to do with married people. At least one married person is involved in this sexual sin. Fornication deals with when you are having a sexual relationship with anything other than your partner, other than the one that God gave you to, to marry. Fornication means you look at somebody and you think something. Fornication means you get so close to somebody. Oh man, they're just my brother. Or, uh, well, she's like a sister to me. Or they're my best friend. Or they're so close to me. It's as if we're the same person. And then eventually your mind stops being friends and your mind starts being something more than friends. Because your mind is where it starts. Your body is just the outflowing of your mind. Because what's in your heart, it's not what comes out of you that defiles you. It's what goes, or it's not what, what goes in you. It's what goes out of you that defiles you. And so what your heart has, that's what's going to flow out of you. And eventually your body, you'll find yourself in the middle of doing something that you're like, I don't think I should be here. But by that point, you've already done it so many times in your heart that like touching a hot stove. My, my left hand is the hand that I take my contacts out with. And I always rinse out my contact case. You guys, you know what I'm talking about, but you always rinse it under hot water, right? My left hand, my fingertips can touch the hot water and rinse out my contact case without even feeling the hot water. But I've done it one time because like I had a cut on my finger or something and I did it with my right hand. It was like, oh my word, I did not realize how bad it, it burns. My left hand, if I'm cooking, like I can flip over a tortilla with my left fingers, um, but but I always pull the pan out of the oven with my right hand bare because I'm just stupid and I, I don't mean to. I just it happens and then it's on the stove and I think, man, I gotta get the food out of it, and then I grab it and I'm like, that was terrible. But if you do it enough times, you've seen like those grandmothers who can just like it doesn't matter what they're doing, if they're cooking something, they gotta flip it, like they just flip it with their fingers and they are you okay? How many times have you had to do it? They grew calluses on their hands because they've touched it so many times. Sexual, sexual immorality on the outside is only a callus from what happened on the inside. Sexual immorality is when you're walking down the street and you see somebody who looks just a little bit better than everybody else and your mind stays on that somebody. Sexual immorality is when in the darkness of your room or in the, the sanctuary of alone time, you find something on your phone that is just a little bit more attractive than what you have. Sexual immorality is when you bond with somebody in a way that you're not supposed to ever bond because God did not give you that person. We are not a people that keeps company with people who are sexually immoral. Our church does not do that. I'll talk more about that in a little bit, but let's keep going. The next word that he uses is, is covetous. Remember, this isn't people who are on the outside, these people who are on the inside. If you're covetous, that means that you want something that you don't have. Um, what does your mind default to? Whenever you're, you're intentionally thinking about something, you're working on a project, you're driving down the road, you're paying attention to the signs, things like that. But then in between that intentional thought and the next intentional thought, I need to think about school, I need to think about job, whatever it is. Between intentional thoughts, what does your brain default to? That's what you love. Hopefully... For someone like who's married, hopefully that thought pattern goes to your spouse. Or if you're dating somebody, then that thought pattern often goes to the person that you're dating. Sometimes it can be stress-filled and you think, man, I got to pay the bills. How are we going to make this work? But 
at the end of the day, the average sum total of everything that you think about over your lifetime should be about something that you should love. But sometimes what we fall in love with, what our brain defaults to, is something that we shouldn't even be in love with because it's not ours. We want something that we can't have. And we decide that we want that even though God has not chosen to give it to us. That's covetous. That's wanting something with a heart that just longs for it. And that we have no place as Christians coveting after things that God has not given us. He says, don't keep company with the man who's called a brother who's sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater. Idolatry is to create idols. And of course, in the Corinthian world, that would be physical, literal idols that people would worship. In our world, we don't really have that. I mean, there is like a Buddhist temple down the road, but, but we're not really in a world that struggles with that. I don't think you struggle with going to the Buddhist temple frequently. <laughs> it's not a problem that we face. But what is a problem that we face is the thing that we will put above God. When your time can be spent serving him, when your time can be spent talking to him, when your time can be spent reading what he has to say to you, and it should be spent in those ways in that time, but yet you choose not to spend it on that, you have created an idol. Somebody would say in a more extreme world, um, here's a definition of idolatry, something that you cannot give up to God. If he were to ask you, would you give it up? Somebody would say, well, how about marijuana? Like nobody says anything about marijuana in the Bible. Give it up. Oh, so even if marijuana isn't in the Bible, if it becomes an idol, if it's something you can't give up, it doesn't matter if it's in the Bible or not, you're wrong. Those other pet sins that we have, maybe the way that we talk about people or the things that we listen to. The Bible doesn't say that you can't do it, so I guess it's okay, right? All right, give it up. Oh, probably shouldn't do that. That's what idolatry means. Sexual immorality, covetous, idolater. He says a reviler. That's the next one. A reviler is somebody um, who speaks angrily at someone else. Reviler is someone who uses their words to hurt. A reviler is someone who knows what they're doing when they talk. When you're talking to somebody and you feel that blood pressure, and you feel your face start to get red, and for me, whenever I'm getting angry, like, I don't, I don't fly off the handle normally. I actually get, whenever I'm actually angry at somebody, um, you've seen it a couple of times. Um, whenever I'm truly angry at someone, I actually get really calm, very, very calm. And I'll just stand there and my face doesn't do anything. My words do all of the work and they're intentional words and they can be such mean words. They don't have to be loud. They don't have to be aggressive, but they cut like razors. That's reviling. Just as much as somebody cuts you off, you roll the window down, they can't hear you. They're on the interstate. And you're out the window. We've all probably seen somebody do that to us or maybe even done it to somebody. But reviling is anywhere in between because you know what you're doing. And reviling sometimes can be behind someone's back, but it can also be in front of someone's back. To their face, if you're excoriating somebody, just shredding them up, then you have no place doing that and calling yourself a Christian. The Bible says so. On the other hand, when you disagree with somebody else, that's really what reviling means. It means when you disagree with somebody, you speak angrily about them or to them. So I almost just inhaled that nap. <laughs> um, reviling, though, whenever you're behind someone's back, you disapprove of what they say, so you tear their character apart behind their back. They might not ever know that you said those things, but God does. And in a church setting, I've seen this happen where people go to other church people 
What are we doing? The church is not a place where revilers can be comfortable. It shouldn't be. The church is a place where God's holiness is comfortable, not where people who go behind others back or people who go up to the preacher all the time. And like, I think of, never mind, never mind. Or a drunkard. That's the next one. Or a drunkard. Nothing. Don't, don't worry about it. Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the spirit. God uses those two things as opposites. When you are filled with the spirit, that is the opposite of being controlled by something else. In this specific instance, it's alcohol, it's wine. But the opposite of that is God. If I'm going to be filled with the spirit, then my desire for all of these other things that will control me disappears. Because being filled with the spirit means I'm focused on what he wants, not on what I want. So what are we dealing with? We're dealing with things like drugs, like alcohol, like tobacco, like vape. These are things that control who you are at a fundamental level that you cannot influence except for the decision to ingest or imbibe whatever the substance is. Be filled with the spirit, not drunk. And then he says, or an extortioner. That's the last one in his list. So don't even fellowship with people who are extortioners who call themselves Christians. What does that mean? An extortioner is someone who gets more than they deserve out of somebody else in a manipulative way. So like a politician asking for donations who only ever squanders the donations on their own personal yacht, something like that. That would be extortion. If I am a CEO, uh, not me, I'm not going to use me as the example. If a CEO is very powerful, he owns the company, he runs the company, and he has a, a, he crushes the life out of his employees, he's extorting his employees. Somebody who manipulates pricing to where people are grossly overpaying what they're supposed to be paying. That's extortion. A preacher who uses God's word to get what he wants instead of what God wants. That's extortion. A pastor who uses his influence to extort, to pull out money from people so that he can have a nice padded paycheck and so that the church can look good on the outside but really just be his personal business on the inside. That's extortion. Someone who uses their influence, their power, their greed to get more out of people than they're supposed to, that is extortion. And that is not what our church will look like. We don't have company with those people. It says, it says this, don't even eat with such a person. How many times, how many times have you ever seen the maybe the backbiting crew of a church get together at lunch. You know what I'm talking about? Where you go to work and there's the couple employees who just really like to talk. You notice they're always together. They're always eating together. Christian fellowship around food is like almost a fundamental doctrine of, of the Baptist faith, but it shouldn't be a fundamental doctrine so that we can gossip. It should be so that we can fellowship about what God's done in our lives. And this kind of sin that's unrepentant, we don't even eat with those people. That's where we are. That sounds extreme. Yeah, because if you want extreme results, if you want holiness in a church, it means that you need to take extreme action. And this is what hard feels like. Those friends that are always going behind or the friends that are always reviling, maybe that boss that is extorting, maybe that um, the person that you know, their eyes wander where they shouldn't be and they're looking at people. We don't, we don't eat with those people. We don't hang out with those people. They aren't our friends. Because I have a friend who's closer than a brother and his name is Jesus. And if he's next to me, why on earth would I want him to be listening to that conversation? Why would I want him to be thinking about um, what is that man thinking about right now when his eyes are going around. When I'm talking with this influential person, do I want Jesus to be hearing the words that I'm saying so that I can get more out of that person or so that he can get more out of me and the others around me? 
I don't want that. I don't want Jesus to be carried around in my heart. I want the Holy Spirit to have to listen to that. He's holy. And he says, be ye holy, for I am holy. So we at Capernaum Baptist Church are holy. And we reflect his holiness because he's the one who's the source of it. Now, um, I kind of got away from the outline for a second. Let me let me quickly go through these. Unrepentant is your first, like number one. Letter A is blatant sinfulness. I think of the story in Joshua 7. I'm not going to make you turn there right now. In Joshua 7 is the story of Achan. Remember that story? They rushed the battle of Jericho. Walls came tumbling down. And God said, this first city, Jericho, is, um, it is completely mine. Do not touch anything in it. It is only for me. It is not for you. You do not take anything. You don't take an animal. You kill anything that moves in there. Jericho is mine, not yours. No touchy. But then Achan, touchy. He found a bar of gold and a jacket that he liked. He got that Versace. And he found that and he took it. He buried it under his bed. You know what I'm talking about. He hid it away from Israel. And they went up to the next city. They were encamped there at Jericho. They went to the next city called Ai. Remember what happened? Ai was such a tiny little town that Joshua said, listen, we're only going to need about 3,000 people to go rush those gates. In fact, they might not even put up a fight. They're probably even going to surrender before we get there. But just send 3,000 in case. So they do. And 31 or 36, something like that, people died. Not from Ai, from the Jews, the Hebrews. They retreated. And now Joshua has to figure out what on earth happened. How did that tiny little army, tiny little city beat us? It's because there was sin in the camp. Unrepentant sin kills. The wages of sin is death, and sometimes it's not our own death. Sometimes our sin flows out to other people because sin kills. I've never seen a relationship end because somebody was holy. I've never seen a pastor fail morally because he was in God's will. I've never seen friends become enemies because they love Jesus with all their hearts. But I've seen all those things because people fell into sin. I don't want our group to be one. In Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 11, it says this, Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed swiftly, the heart of the sons of men is fully set to do evil. If we want to kill sin, we got to punish it fast. I think that's a good parenting principle. I think it's a good teaching principle. But I also think it's a good church principle. When we're dealing with one another, because we're not talking about church in this ethereal thing. We're talking about the people in this room right now. When we're dealing with one another about sin, do it fast. If you know somebody's doing something they shouldn't be doing, talk to them about it. Tell them, listen, Jesus didn't die for you so that you can keep doing that. Because it's not about you saying it to them. It's because I think we all want what, what God wants for us, right? We would all raise our hands and say that, right? And so if we're going to raise our hands and say that, God, I want your will for my life, why would we not be willing to listen to one another when we're trying to do exactly that? We do want that. And so our church, we need to deal with this swiftly. But sometimes there's blatant sinfulness, and the reason that it happens is because it didn't get dealt with fast. That was the problem in Corinth. He said, you're arrogant. You guys let a little bit of sin affect the entire church because you didn't take care of it fast. So we deal with sin quickly. And he says in Proverbs 14, 12, there is a way that seems right unto a man, but its end is the way of death. He also says the literal exact same thing in chapter 16, verse 25. Why does he say it twice? Because the way that makes sense to you, that might lead you to sin. Because its end is death. And what leads to death? Sin. The way with dealing with sin that makes sense to you probably isn't the way to deal with it. Because the end thereof is death. 
I'm strong enough. I got it. That might make sense to you, but the end thereof is death. I'm just telling you that's what God said. Why do we deal with blatant sin as if it's not an issue? Just overlook it and don't think about it. Then there's, on the other hand, there's private sinfulness. So when we are dealing with unrepentant sinners, there's two kinds of unrepentant sinners. Number one, there's the blatant ones who just, I live life however I want. I don't care what God says. I'm going to do my thing. And the end thereof might be death, but I like where I'm at, so I'm just going to stay here. But then on the other hand, there's probably where most of our problems are going to come from. That's the private sin that we deal with. In Matthew chapter 18, go ahead and turn there. Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17. That's where we're going to be. Matthew 18, verse 15 says, Now if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. That means one-on-one. That's the first step. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, then take with you one or two others. So now in this point, there's three or four in the conversation. That by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. He's somebody that you don't even talk to. Somebody you don't, you don't want to see. Somebody that you would treat as someone who needs saved, but somebody who doesn't know God because he's acting like it. You, you teach people how to treat you but that goes for them too. They teach you how to treat them. And if someone wants to teach you that they're okay with sin, then you can treat them like they're okay with sin because that's what they've taught you. That's what they've proven. When we're dealing with private sinfulness, that means you know something about somebody. Either they offended you or you know that they're sinning. Then you go to them one-on-one. You tell them, listen, I care about you. Remember, he says that if they listen to you, you gain a brother. That doesn't mean you become a reviler in that moment. You don't go to them, oh, I'm mad at you. Why did you ever do that? What's wrong with you? You know that God, blah, blah, blah. No, go to them in love. Because all of the things that you can say are just noise unless you do it with love. So go to them with love and go to them with a spirit of restoration. I want you to be who God wants you to be. And I know that the path that you're on right now is not going to take you there. So you need to get this right. If they listen to you, they will appreciate you for it. But if they don't listen to you, then you bring somebody else there with you. So that really, now you're safe. Now it's not he said, she said. Now it's, listen, we talked to him, we talked to her, and they didn't want anything to do with what we were telling them. And so now we need to bring it before the church. At that point, at Capernaum Baptist Church, the way that we will deal with this is... Um, either if it's a public thing, we will deal with it publicly as a church. If it is a private thing, then we'll deal with it in a more private way with maybe some of the the key church leaders to represent the church, if that makes sense. There are just some things that don't need to be in front of everybody, okay? Um, But there are some things that do need to be in front of everybody. Because the point is sometimes that punishment You see that there at the bottom. Punishment is not for the benefit of the sinner, but for the salvation of the saints, um, under letter C. Sometimes punishment for somebody doesn't mean that they're going to get better, but a lot of times it means that everybody else who saw it will. And really, all the people who would be doing the punishing, all the people who would uh, be casting out someone as a church, they're the ones who are going to benefit from the church discipline, not the person who's been delivered to Satan. Okay, at that point, they've already made their mark. They know where they're going. They know what's happening here. Um, And by the way, let us see. The result is to be cast out. So I'm going to quickly go through what we've talked about, and then we're going to get to the good news. 
when you're dealing with unrepentant sinners, there are two kinds of them. There's the ones who are blatant, obvious. They don't care what the Bible says. They're going to do their own thing. There's the other kind where they're going to do their own thing, but they're not going to make a big scene about it. Not everybody knows about it. And you deal with it the right way, like Jesus told us to in Matthew chapter 18. But at some point, if they're just not going to repent, if after that third warning, if after the church has has clearly heard the case and they're just not going to change, then they get cast out. They're no longer part of the church. They are treated as if they were never saved in the first place. And literally the next time that you see them, you treat them as if they were somebody whose door you knocked on and you're handing them a track. That's how we deal with people who don't care about the God that we serve. Because frankly, either they're so far quenched from the spirit that it, it's not going to matter to them, or maybe they were just literally never saved in the first place. Maybe they need the gospel that you're trying to give them. But either way, God's going to sort it out and he's the one who will judge them. It's not your job. But on the other hand, there are people who, number two, will be repentant. Turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. Look at verse 1. It says, For freedom Christ freed us. Why did Christ free us? So that we could be free. That's what he means. Stand fast, therefore. And do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Now look at verse 16. I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. You're not freed so that you can go right back to being in bondage. You're freed so you can be free. And if you want to be free, and I I speak this to you, these people in the room right now. If you have a sin problem and you want to be free from it, walk in the Spirit. It's not complicated. It's not easy, but it is simple. Walk in the Spirit and you will not. The Bible says you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. If you want to be free from your sin, walk in the Spirit. That's step one. He says in in John 5, 15, Jesus said, I'm the vine and you're the branches. That means where do you get your life from? The holiness from, the righteousness from. You get it from the nutrients that the vine delivers to the branches. So I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who remains in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, ye can do nothing. If you want God's help, then let him help you. Because without him, you can't do it at all. And anyone who's ever dealt with any sin in this room, which would be all of us, you know that you're not going to beat it on your own. You can only beat it, and you're not going to beat it through therapy. You're not going to beat it through accountability. You're not going to beat it through um, beating yourself up every time you fall into sin. You're not going to beat it through ignoring it. You're not going to beat it from running away from temptations. You're not going to beat it from filters. You're not going to beat it from staying away from those places. You're going to beat it through Him. Walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. That's number one, walk in the Spirit. Letter B. Letter B, cleanse your way. Turn to Psalm 119. Psalm 119 and verse 9. How shall a young man keep his way pure? In the King James, it says, how shall a young man, man cleanse his way? Here's how. By keeping it according to your word. So cleanse your way. How's that going to happen? Through the word of God. How are you going to walk in the spirit if you're not engaged with his word? It doesn't make sense. You can't, you can't have your cake and eat it too. God, I want your help. I don't want to have to deal with this sin anymore. Um, You're praying to God, God, help me today with my temptation. God, I'm putting on the armor of God. God, today is the day 
Um, today I'm going to conquer. Today I'm not going to fall to sin. Today I'm not going to speak like that. I'm not going to think like that. I'm not going to look at that. I'm not going to drink that. I'm not going to take that. I'm not going to any of that because today, God, you're powerful and you're more powerful than my sin. And with every temptation, you make a way out. But I'm not going to read your word because I don't need that if I prayed enough. Fool. The Bible says that if you want to cleanse your way, you want to keep your way pure, it's through God's word. How can you walk in the spirit and not fulfill the lust of the flesh? How can you truly walk in the spirit and not be learning from his word? It's silly. You need all of it. You're not supposed to do those things just because it's for your health, although it is. You're supposed to do it because it's what God commands. If you want to do what God has for you, you want to beat the sin that so easily besets you and weighs you down and change you, then he, he already bound the chains of death. He killed off sin. He beat it. So why not walk in the Spirit? But how can you do that apart from his word? It says in verse, uh, I'm sorry, in John chapter 8, verse 32, he says, you shall know the truth. How are you going to know the truth if you're not reading about the truth? But he says that you'll know the truth and the truth shall set you what? Free. free. You want to be free from your sin? Know the truth. Walk in the spirit. By the way, if you're going to walk in the spirit, that means that you're going to be talking to the spirit. And even when you're not, he makes intercession on your behalf when you don't even know what to say. He knows that you're facing temptation because he's smart. He knows that today that thing's going to happen again that triggers you and starts the spiral. He's already praying for you, and Jesus is sitting right there at the right hand of the Father, and he's delivering the prayers right to God. He is interceding on your behalf. Don't you think that Jesus already prayed for you? Don't you think that he loves you enough that he can help you? Don't you think that your sin can be conquered through his power? Yes, it can be. The truth shall set you free because there is no temptation taking you. But what's common to man? But with every temptation, he will make a way to bear it. So God has already delivered you. He already paid the penalty of the sin. Why do you think that he wants you to stay in it? He doesn't. So be free from it. You'll know the truth and it will set, and it will set you free. And when we're dealing with repentant sinners, the result, let us see, is they're restored. I love the next verses. On the back of your page, it has two verses, and I want you to fill in the words. Romans 8, verse 1, it says, There is therefore now no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus, there's no condemnation. But watch the second half of this. For those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. How are you going to cleanse your way? How are you going to stay away from the lusts of the flesh? By walking in the Spirit. Thy word is truth. Look at the second verse, Ecclesiastes 12, 13. He finishes the book up with this thought. Okay, so he's complained. He said, everything under the sun is vanity. It's all empty. Doesn't matter how hard you work. Doesn't matter how much money you make. Doesn't matter how much money you don't make or you give away. Doesn't matter how big or small your family is, how long you live, how short you live. If you're a, a baby, if you're an old man, an old woman, does not matter what your life looks like under the sun because it's all the same. There's nothing new. You're, you're facing the same struggles. You're facing the same sin. You're facing the same temptation that every other person has faced in this world. Remember, because there's no temptation, but that which is common to man, it's common for you to deal with what you deal with. You're not alone. Even God says that you're not alone. You don't need somebody to say it for you. But then he says this, now all has been heard. Everything that you can do in your life under the sun, that means short of heaven, everything earthly, 
All's been heard, and let us hear the conclusion of the matter. You want to know how to make your life worth something? Number one, fear God and keep his commandments. That's it. For this is the whole duty of man. You know what that word whole means? It means entire. It means completed. Sin breaks you. And sin will kill off parts of you. It will kill off relationships. Sin will murder parts of your life that should have never been touched. Sin leaves you broken. Sin leaves you with holes. Like a craggy rock that's been decayed over years and years of weather and waves beating against it. It leaves you carved away, unsaturated, unfilled, unfulfilled. It leaves you empty and broken and cracked and shattered. And your life turns into nothing but shards when it is done. Because sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. But if you want to be made whole, that's what he, that's what he says. Whole. What is your duty to be made whole? How do you do that? You fear God and keep his commandments. What does he command you to do? Walk in the spirit. Read his word. And when you do those things, when you repent of your sin, and you give it to the one who can change you, you have no more problems. Not to say that you won't be tempted, but Jesus was tempted without sin. If we're called to be little Christs, then can't we too be tempted without sin? Capernaum Baptist Church is not a place that is friendly to sin. In fact, our church is the enemy of sin. Because remember, even Jesus says that we oppose sin. Not even the gates of hell shall prevail against it. Hell is a place entirely devoted to the punishment of sin. The opposite of hell is the church. The opposite of Hell is heaven. If we're to reflect heaven, God's holiness, and we can't be friends with sin, but we can follow God's steps for staying away from it. And when somebody else fails, we can help them get on the right, the right track too. That's what I want for our church, and that's what I want for you. God, thank you for tonight, the opportunity to study your word.